0: Suzanne, could I invite you up? Yeah? Okay. So we're moving into the keynote um, portion of the day. And we're... Oh, there you go. Speaker. And Suzanne uh, Daliwal will uh, start us off uh, with her talk entitled Art in the Age of Ecocide and Anthropocene. And Suzanne is the founder of uh, No Tar Sands Network, climate uh, justice campaigner and creative. And I also saw that you go by climate justice consultant, So we have a real expert. <laughs> and I feel we should uh, also mention somehow Dafina uh, Misijan, uh, who put us into contact. So without further ado, um, we We'll continue with the uh, allotted time. So you have uh, 40 minutes, and that's including questions and answers. Thank you very much.
1: Do you want to hold? Or? I, think, I think I'm going to hold, yeah, because I'm hold? tiny. It's just going to make it look <laughs> <laughs> worse. <laughs>
0: I'll hold it. Yeah, it's fine. It. Yeah, sure. yeah.
1: it gives me something, too. I might bring a chair though. Yeah. Small people things. Okay. I'm going to sit. How's that? Can you hear me at the back as well? Hi people in the back. So hi, yeah, my name's Suzanne and thanks for the introduction and I'm really uh, happy to be here today. I'm actually one of the uh, many Brexiters expats, whatever you want to call us, who are (laughs) living in Amsterdam. And so, yeah, I've been living here for two years and this is really great to um, meet you all, and to figure out who my climate justice community is here. So yeah, so I've been working um, for the last decade or so, primarily at the. Should I press play? I'm going to ho- I'm going to be on this one for a bit. Okay. Thanks. Is it all right if I just click as I go? All good. Great. Um, so yeah, I've been working. Um, Primarily at the intersection of indigenous rights and extractivism, actually. And so I didn't actually start as a climate change activist. Um, a lot of my work was working more in. Um, I was actually training to be a traditional healer. I was like a full on hippie, was. Um, and. <laughs> And in that journey, I actually grew up in Canada. So I moved to Canada when I was younger. And so I was in Canada studying traditional medicines, learning about philosophy. And the more that I learned about traditional medicines and the closer I got to those communities, the more actually it was about the devastation, the violence that was happening to the land. So um, in terms of how I frame myself, I don't necessarily consider myself an activist or an artist, I feel like I move between as an alchemist um, in the spaces that we have to occupy, reoccupy and take um, as people of color within this climate movement. So being in an art space for me is really always an interesting question. And when we ask, what is the role of art in the age of ecocide and um, the Anthropocene or what I've heard called the white supremacy, which is, (laughs) Funny, I like that term. To unpack that a bit, um, what does that mean um, for us as artists? And I often try and think about, you know, we talk about it being a climate crisis, but I often think it's actually a climate renaissance as well. Never before have we had to undergo such a rapid paradigm shift, a complete rethinking of what it even means to be a human being. How are we going to eat? How are we going to sleep? What are we going to work? So the fact that I think art is central both as a way to illustrate, to activate, um, also it's a tool that is used by activism and and both in an appropriate sense and a misrepresentation. Um, I think holding these questions and... Um, that also trails to the accountability of art institutions and changing itself. So, But for me as a philosopher, as a thinker, someone who studied um, social sculpture, um, so studying along the, the theories of Boyce and Shelley Sachs and looking at what does art also mean to hold us in a space of um, critical reflection So even though for the past 10 years my work has been in climate change and activism, I actually took refuge, I would say, in art um, and and stepped aside to do a master's um, in social sculpture because what I was finding was that the oppressions that we were fighting outside in the world uh, of patriarchy, white supremacy, were recreating themselves within the movements themselves so at the helm of you know this legacy of colonialism of environmentalism the nonprofit industrial complex um, all of those things meant that even though i was like to be humble, a ninja, uh, shutting down petrol stations, taking down trade talks, all of this work that I'll show you, um, I was unable to do my job. I was unable to be seen by my colleagues as someone who was a rational, strategic, equal in those spaces. So my work has actually been to work with invisible materials working with power and privilege and the culture of activism itself. And to even call activism a culture has been a question because often it's just like 90s grunge aesthetic, which I'm guilty of, um, is the, you know, the aesthetic for activism as we've seen with Extinction Rebellion commodifying and recreating. So a lot of my work is to actually look at the culture of activism And then this image, this turning of the megaphone around, for me was to really make visible, all the invisible work that happens within Solidarity the listening, which you would be surprised at how little happens. So we actually rewired the megaphone uh, and turned the electronics around it so that you can listen through the megaphone and you can listen through it. So I'll be talking about a lot of the strategies um, and, the situa- and, and the work that I've been doing, um, both in activism and art and also in this liminal space between art and activism. So I'm just going to back it up a little bit and talk a little bit about the, the age of ecocide that we find ourselves in. So um, how many of you know about the Alberta tar sands in Canada? Awesome, okay. So, you know, when we're thinking about climate change and we, and we zoom out and we think about the entirety of Mother Earth, there are certain tipping points, certain places that are being... Um, Devastated, like high rates of deforestation. And we often hear about the Amazon, but the boreal forest in Canada is, you know, it's the twin lung of the planet. And so, um, about 12 years ago, um, 10 years ago, a long time ago, um, when I Actually, I left Canada. I left my job at Doctors Without Borders because at the time, um, you couldn't talk about climate change in Canada. You couldn't talk about indigenous rights. So um, after I was done being a hippie and was working at MSF and trying to understand how to connect activism um, and and climate change, one day on the internet, I just saw the tar sands. And this is what I saw, that in Canada, This was once pristine boreal forest. And what was happening was it was being turned into this landscape that is completely, it's irrecognizable. You don't actually think it's, it's on earth. So what is happening in Canada and what I learned about was the fact that this is the biggest industrial project that's happened in human history. It's the largest amount of earth that's ever been moved. And basically the oil that most of the US is getting is not coming from Saudi Arabia, it's coming from Canada. So this land is indigenous land, it's indigenous territory. So about 10 years ago, I um, found out about this and I thought, well, there should be a campaign about this. It's obvious connecting indigenous rights, climate change. And I was working at Survival International at the time. And the CEO just said to me, you're never going to stop this. You need to stop talking about it. So obviously at lunchtime, I was secretly making PowerPoints about it and trying to get everyone on the team on board. And eventually I was fired um, from survival. This is a theme, getting fired from NGOs. Um, And what happened was I ended up being like, well creating my own organisation, No Sands. that's how it came about. Because it's like, no way can this be going ahead, and we don't know about it. I lived in Canada for like most of my 20s, I'd never heard about it. And so what we did was we started to build international awareness. So this is, you know, the area that's been slated up for, devas- for devastation is the size of England and Wales. And the kind of oil that we're getting from here is unconventional oil. So conventional oil is the sticky stuff that... Just spurts out, and we've we've reached that we reached that peak oil in 2009. And instead of transitioning, what happened was we switched to Frankenstein oil, so tar sands oil. So basically, the forest is removed, which is called overburden in the industry, um, and this oil has to be processed with um, three to five barrels of water. Uh, natural gas and then it's eventually shipped and refined and the plan is that this is the oil that will take us to the next 20 years it will be shipped to China and to Russia once the Arctic melts Um, so that is the energy plan that Shell and BP have cooked up for us so yeah so this is what we we started to do about 10 years ago and we really realized that we had this trail of complicity in the UK, because if you think about the, the devastation that is happening there, it was being fueled by British petroleum shell. every oil major um, that exists was in there at the time. And so what we did was we created this logo and this logo was created with the chief of one of the First Nations, and it was very much around the fact that, you know this is, this is blood oil. this is essentially indigenous lands, this. Or this the impacts of this oil was being felt on those communities. And so what we started doing was a lot of this, a lot of these direct actions outside of Canada House, sometimes three or four times a month for the last decade to internationalize what was happening um, and then, you know, Also, that solidarity relationship meant to go and witness. And sometimes those actions aren't always actions, like protesting. Sometimes what the community asked for was a healing walk. So this was actually a healing walk. We actually walked through that landscape. To witness the devastation that was happening, and that was being what was asked for at that point. So, a lot of the work that we've been doing, and to bring it back to that megaphone image, um, the core values of UK Tar Sands Network was that we were working in solidarity. So, any campaign, any logo, everything was done in consultation. You know, even at first, this was a black drop. And the, the chief was like, "No, that has to be a red drop. It's our blood." So that carefulness, that consultation in every design thing, um, is, is core to what was practiced to us, and it's something that is just sorely missing when we see how um, climate cu- climate activism cultures happen now. So you know we hear a lot about the divestment work that's been happening, um, and this this work has been happening for 10 years. It's been happening for a long time, and this was an action that happened at the Royal Bank of Scotland. Um, and so some you know, and some of these actions look like some of the stuff that's coming out from Extinction Rebellion. On, on the face of it, it looks the same, but I just want to bring you into some of the backstory to show just how different it is. So all of these actions that we designed, we really played with the strange because we couldn't necessarily get anyone arrested. These are chiefs, these are community members, these are young women who are fighting for their, their lives of their communities. They're not necessarily activists. So whenever we did an action or an intervention, we had to make it wacky enough that you could get the press out there at eight o'clock in the morning. But at the same time, it had to be held enough that any of the implications um, of, the, and the imagery, the tone, would reflect well on those communities when they went home because they would be the ones that would face the security forces that would uh, risk losing their jobs. Um, And so we really played with the strange and sort of playing with that space of um, calling attention to the financial institutions that were driving this. Um, And so aside from divestment, the thing that we were asking for was actually a change in the financial um, infrastructure. Um, So making sure that unconventional oil was seen as kind of a dirty investment. So that's what's really pushed the markets. Yes, it's been the action, but this work to change the shareholder conversations, to label dirty oil, um, to show um, that assets will become stranded under climate legislation that moves forward. But we were doing all of that work with an intersectional framework. So the indigenous rights, the human rights abuses, the social abuses, All of that was front and centre of our arguments because the climate change arguments, the scientific arguments, they're all there. But what you have to bring to the shareholders is the heart of it. You have to bring those moral arguments and to show that actually it's not just about divesting from one project or moving one bit of money because another bank will come in. Another corporation will come in. You have to change lending policies themselves. Um, And so that work also then shifted into the insurance sector where we... um, pushed for changes so that insurance companies would no longer underwrite coal projects. And if you remove the insurance from a project, then you can no longer get um, investments. So it's a way of speeding up the divestment. But all of this history, all of this work has been completely erased by the non-profit industrial complex, which when it saw this action, it saw that we were making something so boring, like insurance, really cool, co-opted it and that became um, some of the campaigns that happened from groups like 350.org, but erasing the ability of us to have the resources to do that. you know, A lot of those campaigns that we did around Shell and BP and RBS, they were always intimately connected with the campaigns that have been happening around the art galleries, such as BP in the Tate and Shell. So when we were at the BP AGM, inside talking about pension funds, human rights abuses, we would then have another group that would, we would work alongside, Liberate Tate and the whole Art Not Oil Coalition. Um, and we would then do actions that would happen, say, in, in synergy as well. So that was part of a strategy of brand damage. So, brand, you know, there could be, in three days, there could be an action at a shareholder meeting, at a gallery. We would shut a petrol station down, which is really easy. You just get a ladder, climb on top. They have to close it down. Um, anyway, just tip. Um, and and so this, this spectrum of um, doing this brand damage in these different spaces, and this came up yesterday in one of our conversations of working with a real um, broad coalition of stakeholders. So behind the meetings, we would be like pension holders, rising tide, all the diversity of tactics behind the scenes, pushing to show how devastating Shell's operations are, BP's operations are. But on the front of it, we would look like we were just popping up from different places. So that's how we've really created this culture of you know, what has now become very implicit that we all know how these corporations are moving forward. And what's really exciting is the work that's been happening now in the Netherlands with um, you know, exposing Shell's um, complicity in our institutions institutions here, so I think it's really exciting to continue that work. But just understanding it's come from 10 years um, of work, and I really want to shout out to Platform London, who've been really holding this work as well. Um, And I just want to say, I completely remade this presentation yesterday because of something Amma said. Um, When Amma mentioned the idea of the archive, I really, really thought about that, how in the last 18 months, we've been especially so erased as people of colour, as those who've been holding this movement. So when I was putting together this this presentation, it really felt like the beginning of that archive that you were imagining, that we hold space for movement, her story, because like I said, so many of these actions look like they could have been done by Extinction Rebellion, but there's a real legacy of work that's been happening. Um, Where am I with time? Ten minutes. Okay, I'm going to speed this up a lot. (laughs) <laughs> so this is an action that we did um, after the Gulf spill happened um, and again, even though it was like a really simple action, we made sure we got on Skype with the Fisher people in the Gulf Coast and made sure that they decided what it looked like, what the tone was who needs to be in the press release who's, what are the demands of BP, so there's very concrete asks you know, we might have our own agenda with BP where we want them to go, but the community were looking for um, re- reparations, so always making sure you do that consultation in your design and your actions. Um, And then playing with pop, I love playing with pop culture. We made these hats for um, Kate. Um, uh, when she was on a royal trip to Alberta and she didn't visit the Tar Sands so we thought we'd make her some hats um, so she could see what she was missing. I've actually wore this hat to so many Halloween parties, it's great. Um, so, And we also had that in Grazia, so really working with pop culture to get that message out. Um, and then you know, a lot of the work we've done has been really boring fuel legislation that's happening behind the scenes. We were trying to get Tar Sands banned from European markets, but making that interesting sometimes is such a challenge so I worked with artists, felt artist, Lucy Sparrow, and we created this felt impacts this whole scene um, that was made out of felt that was, you know, again, working a bit with the strange, like the security guard are like, okay, stop moving the glitter with these animals. Like, sometimes that strangeness is enough to um, hold the space and to get the press. Um, and again, this is in The Hague. You know, we've been to the Chalet GM most years um, to bring attention to that, you know, that invisible um, sort of menace that is in, 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 in the Hague that we don't often hear about, you know, what exactly is happening in that meeting? What are the decisions that are happening there? And so I think I'd really urge you to go to the shareholder meetings. It's whack. Like when you can sit there and listen to, you know, these five men or these so many men with really bad tans making decisions for all of us and our future, it's really really empowering. And it really shows you that, you know, there is a, a theater, a forum to challenge these spaces. Um, And, you know, again, with this action, we had no money. We asked all these organisations to help us. We literally would pull this together with, like, 50 quid from my mum, like this here. And this imagery, these strategies, these tactics, have become, like, you know, what bring in millions for large organisations. But those of us doing this work don't have that resources. Um, And, again, this is Richard of the Earth, and I just want to reference, again, what Amma was bringing up yesterday about um, uh, how, you know, really understanding that... You know that violence that has been perpetuated against our movements at the moment. This is actually the last action that I ever went in that I didn't organise because I had the police set on me by the non-profits. Um, and so we really have a question about how we're moving forward with our movements. And so... I just wanna bring Ken saro were into the room. I think it's really important when we're questioning Extinction Rebellion and these organizations that are puppets of climate capitalism, um, that we understand that we do have legacies of environmental justice um, that we can appeal to and we don't have to sell short. Um, and, you know, there's, again, this is an amazing art intervention that happened with Sakari um, Douglas Camp, a British Nigerian artist, and we sent this... Um, this bus actually to Nigeria when Ken Sarawira, it was 20 years since the um, death of Ken were and the Ogoni Nine, and this art, Piece actually fell in the river, and then it was confiscated by one of the colonels who was part of the execution of Ken Sarawiwa. We so we've been doing these art interventions that, you know, really connect the deep environmental justice movements that exist. Um, but when the bus got um, stolen, we basically then used that to get it in the press, and again, always using your art to think, well, what is the ask here? So we used the fact that the bus had been stolen to ask for cleanup money for the shells, um, ecocidal operations there, um, and again, you know, this is part of this archive that I really want to really want to talk to you more about. Ama. Like this, this was the the artwork that came out of that space, and this meant this whole new generation who hadn't heard about Ken suddenly there was this campaign to save the bus, um, and this actually went out on Twitter on the Nigerian um, hip hop um, Twitter station started sharing it. So there's this such this rich history of environmental justice that we have with our communities. And just last thing is, you know, a lot of the work that I do is also as a, a producer because often we can't get our stories into the press about what is really happening. And that's a really critical question. Like for instance, the Guardian reported out on the outcomes of COP21, that indigenous people were happy with it and they were fine when actually we know there are no legal binding human rights or indigenous rights in that agreement. So we had to make digital media. Um, We have a channel called Indigenous Rising Media and we were reaching about um, 2 million people on that day. So we constantly have to be creative, Um, in terms of how we're getting our message out. So this happened last week. Um, So you know, one of the roles that I end up taking is like, instead of actually talking about insurance and stranded assets and all the boring things that I'm good at, I usually end up having to talk about white supremacy and racism that happens in the movement. And I think we've reached a critical point with that conversation last week, when this action happened that stopped um, black and brown people getting to work and 70% of Extinction Rebellion members actually said they didn't want this action to, to go ahead, and it did. So one, what the hell is your organizing principles if you're not respecting your own people? You know, who is driving this? And it really pushed me to dig a bit deeper, and I sound like a bit of a conspiracy theorist when I say this, but you should really look, and I'll send you the reports, exactly what is Extinction Rebellion, and why is there a willful neglect of people like me who've been doing direct action for 10 years? It's intentional. It's intentional to remove us because we've actually been fighting for this change and it's easier to co-opt our messaging. So at the moment, they have millions, so I've got lots of questions and I've got people inside XR getting me those accounts. I want to see the accounts, I want to see the books, and I want to get that money to the front line. Um, And so this is the last thing as well. um, This is about this white supremacy that is happening in the culture and it's replicating itself. And I'm trying to show to you how who's in representation, who's in the media, who gets in the pictures equals resources. And so it's been very painful, this last wave of what's been happening with Greta, and no offence to Greta, I think she's amazing, my brother's autistic, well, she's doing amazing, but this culture which is pushing Greta is a perpetuation of that white supremacy that I've just spent the last decade fighting. Um, And so we have to really think about who is this child, how are they being manipulated, how are they being used? Um, How is this perpetuating a culture of white supremacy? Um, And so I actually work on a podcast, and what we did last week when all this was happening, it was about recentering. It was about bringing black and brown people beside her. And so, you know, often the way I work now is often more like an influencer. um, And it's putting in those images, like getting, you know, their images next to Greta so that this next uh, generation isn't having to go through that. Because, you know, I realise quite through that point that actually the environmental movement was working for a future that didn't actually have me inside it. So I think you know these questions that get put on the side, like, oh, is Extinction Rebellion a bit racist? Like, it's racist, it's white supremacist. I don't use that term lightly. And so <laughs> we have to really rapidly speed up, and I think that's why art and this gathering, this space for safe, critical reflection about the culture of activism itself and who's holding it and the resources and the complicity and allyship that's possible from art is really, really crucial. Um, and this is just the last little nice thing. Um, so yeah, as, as I saw that it, the white supremacy and the representation um, was, was so intense, I actually shift shifted from doing so much direct action towards being more of a cultural producer because I felt like that was the way I could fight that the most. So this is actually a podcast um, for the wild that I work with. It's the anthropology of the Anthropocene. Um, and so we really work on recentering and trying to make activism a bit cool. like appeal to those Burning Man hippies. Um, and yeah, so that's, that's just a bit of the work that I've been doing and I'm gonna leave it open for questions.